Good morning. Welcome. My name's Eben Brusco. I'm the senior pastor here at Vineyard Cleveland. I'm glad that you're here. I hope that you feel safe, you feel welcome to experience something of, of God's presence. Okay, so we're going to be studying Nehemiah 3 today. We, um, and it's, you guys are in for a uh, treat today. Let me tell you what. If you wanted to swipe there or turn there with me just to get ready, you'll see there's a lot of names, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about names and how, what, what name, why are names significant to God? Why, why do names matter to God? And I watched a documentary last, last week on the 1960s. Um, some of you may have seen it. It's, it was put out by CNN, and, and they talked about the hippie movement, and they talked about Haight-Ashbury in, in San Francisco, and um, Sarah's been out to Haight-Ashbury before, and, but didn't experience it like folks experienced it back then, right? So in the early 1960s, all of these young kids start moving out to California, moving out to hey, the, the corner of Haight and Ashbury Street in San Francisco. And they start uh, forming their own uh, counterculture, and rent is cheap, and art is everywhere, and drugs are everywhere. And there's this sense of like getting away from the norm and getting out from underneath of the previous generation and forming their own identity. And so... They settled there in Haight-Ashbury, but towards the end of the 1960s, this thing kind of does a downswing, and rent goes up, gentrification starts happening in Haight-Ashbury, and all of the hippies then go, peace, we're out. So they move to places like Santa Cruz and the coast, and they begin to get married or have kids in no particular order, and the kids that they're having, they start to name them uh, not Melissa or Brett. The hippies from California, they begin to name uh, their children different sort of names. The people of, who lived in the mountains around Santa Cruz grew accustomed to their children playing frisbee with little time warp or spring fever. Eventually, moonbeam, earth, Love and precious promise, they all ended up in public school system. That's when the kindergarten uh, teachers first met fruit stand. (laughs) Every fall, according to tradition, parents bravely apply name tags to their children. They kiss them goodbye and send them off to school on the bus. And so it was for fruit stand. The teachers thought that the boy's name was odd, but they tried to make the best of it. He, uh, they would ask him, would you, would you like to play with the blocks, fruit stand? And later, fruit stand, how about a snack? He accepted hesitantly, but by the end of the day, his name didn't seem too much odder than Heather's or Sunray. At dismissal time, the teachers led the children out to the buses. Fruit stand, do you know which one is your bus? He didn't answer. That wasn't strange. He hadn't answered them all day. Lots of children are shy on the first day of school. It didn't, it didn't matter. The teachers had instructed the parents to write the names of their children's bus stops on the reverse side of their name tags. 
The teacher simply turned over the tag, and there, neatly printed, was the word Anthony. <laughs> Names matter. You get it? Names matter. Names His bus stop was Fruit Stand. Okay. Now, okay. Let's bring the cookies down to the lower shelf. The bus stop was at the Fruit Stand. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> we still, it's just like still fun. Okay, we got it. All right, good. That's why it's funny. The bus stop was the fruit stand. So names matter, <laughs> names matter significantly to God. Names matter to God, and that's why they're listed in the Bible. You know, we come, we're going to study a passage of Scripture this morning that typically, you know, is like the boring part in our devotionals. If you spend devotional time in the Word, you're like, oh, shoot, do I have to read through the genealogies again? You know, that's what we're going to be talking about today, the boring part. But I believe that there's something of, like, God's goodness in this for us uh, today. We're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about why names are important to God. We're going to talk about obedience, why obedience matters. And we're going to talk about vision and how far vision can go. So let's, let's start. If you've got uh, your Bible with you, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We've got some on the side of the stage. Or if you have your phone, why don't you turn there or swipe there with me. Nehemiah 3. And now you're going you're gonna to need to give me some grace as well, guys. There's some really tough names here. I don't know how. Okay, this is going to be tough. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassaneah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bena, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tikoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana uh, gate was repaired by Joyada, son of uh, Peseah and Meshilim, son of Besodeah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. I love when we get to those. That, that's, I got that one down. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. I love it. So easy. Not like next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mitzpah. Melatiah of Gibeon and Jaden of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Herahiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jedeah, son of 
uh, Harumpa made <laughs> repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hash bin Ayam, made repairs next to him. Malkijah, son of uh, Harim, and Hashub, son of Pahathab Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Shalom, son of Halawashesh, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Come on. The valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zenoah. They rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. They also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the Dung Gate. The Dung Gate was repaired by Malkijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakerem. He rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. The Fountain Gate was repaired by Shalun, son of Kol Jose, ruler of the district of Mitzbah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the Pool of Siloam by the King's Garden as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of a half-district of Beth-zur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool in the house of the heroes. Next to him, um, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of the district of Kalia, carried out repairs for his district. Next to him, the repairs were made by the countrymen under Benuai, son of Hanadad, rule, uh, ruler of the half-district of Kiliah. Next to him, Ezar, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mitzpah, repaired another section from the point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house in Eliashib, of Elishab the high priest. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired another section from the entrance of Elishab's house to, to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priest from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs in front of their house, and next to them, Azariah, son of Messiah, uh, Messiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside the house next to him. Benui, son of Henadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle of the corner. And Palau, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle of the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard next to him. Padiah, son of Parosh, the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel, made repairs up to the point opposite the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower of the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of uh, Emer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, uh, Shemaiah, Son of Shechaniah, the guard of, uh, at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanum, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, uh, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malkijah, 
one of the goldsmiths made repairs as far as the house of the temple's servants and the merchants opposite of the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. How in the world is that going to preach? Uh, let's figure it out. Thank you. I'll receive, I receive that. Humbly, I receive that round of applause. Names are important. Why do we read the whole thing? Names are important. Names are important to God. Names are important to Him. Proverbs 22 says that a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is, to be, is better than silver or gold. In Isaiah 43, we read that God says, I have called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my eyes. Oftentimes there are so many accolades given to titles rather than names in our society. Titles like CEO or titles like cum laude or titles like president. The accolades are given to titles rather than names, but God cares about our names. Jesus loves our names. Do you, know, do you know that it's been scientifically proven that the sweetest sound your ears will hear is your name spoken back to you by someone else, by someone other than yourself? Aesthetically, it's the most pleasurable sound you will hear in your life, your name being spoken to you. That's why these names are here in our Bibles. Because names matter to God. Names matter. In Luke 19, Jesus looked up at Zacchaeus, and he what? He called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said. Now this is, this is different. This is strange for Zacchaeus. And we see this happening lots in Jesus' life. He's He's either renaming somebody. He says, you're no longer Simon. Now you're Peter. And upon you, I'll build my church. So he's really into renaming people. He's going to give you a new name, he said. In Revelation, he's, he's got a white rock. And he's got a new name written for you on it. He's really into renaming people. You were once this, but now you are that. You were once Abram, now you're Abraham. You're the father of many nations. And how amazing it must have been for Zacchaeus. When he, here's a government official. When anytime Zacchaeus hears his name spoken by anyone else, it's probably not in a positive manner. He, this guy is like taking money from people. He's practicing usury. He's like, he's deep in with the Roman government. And so he's taking money from Jews. Anytime anyone is saying Zacchaeus' name, I'm pretty sure it's not in a positive light. But did you know that Zacchaeus' name means pure one? And so when Jesus calls, speaks out Zacchaeus' name, Zacchaeus is in the tree. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus. Do you, do you know that, that the Lord knows Zacchaeus' name? And instead of saying, he may have said Zacchaeus with his mouth, but what the Lord is saying is, pure one, I'm having dinner with you tonight. Come down out of that tree. 
calling everything by its right name. Jesus is the best at nomenclature. Jesus loves names. Calling everything by its right name. Hmm. Next, we want to talk about obedience and how it's more valuable to God than skill or talent. Obedience is more important to God than skill or talent. We see it over and over again in the narrative. As we read Nehemiah's writing, Nehemiah's writing in the first person, he's, write, he's writing, Nehemiah's the one who's writing the story, in other words. We see it happening over and over again. People saying yes over their skill or talent. Watch, Eliashib is a high priest. In verse 1, he's the first to put his hand to the work of rebuilding the wall. We see perfume makers. We see daughters. That's empowering to women, by the way, that the daughters are listed in, in the verse. That's really empowering to women. Shouldn't, that, that would normally not happen in an Old Testament context. Governors, in verse 7, when does that ever happen today? Rarely do we see our politicians put their hands to the rebuilding of the ruins. Talk a lot about the ruins. Rarely put their hands to work. Governors in verse 7. Goldsmiths in verse 8. Rulers of half of districts, verse 9. And musicians, verse 17. The Levites. This is a nugget for you creatives and you musicians and you artists. Put your hand to the work. Artists. Musicians, we need you. We need creative expression. Not, we know that you, that you toil over songs, that you, that you pour blood, sweat, and tears into lyrics or words. Keep going. Don't give up. Put your, put your hands to the work. This city needs to hear hope in your songs. Your life's work is important, and many times musicians or artists' work will be devalued because they're uh, just singing a song. Or, uh, they're just painting a picture. They're not. Levites putting their hand to the plow, putting their, getting their hands dirty and rebuilding the wall. That's, that's, a, real, that's a really good thing. Uh, our, because our prayers are rewriting the narrative of the city of Cleveland. It's not written yet. And if songwriters are writing in Cleveland, then they're... they're there's something prophetic that happens with songwriters and musicians. They're actually singing what we'll see and experience in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Is that clear? Is that, did I break that down? Okay. So musicians putting their hands to the work of rebuilding the wall, getting their hands dirty. Really proud of, really proud of Rufus holding a Big Jewel Green concert here. You know, they've, those guys are bringing hope and bringing life to the city. They, I think they were on the news like three weeks ago. And they're just doing their thing, man. Just bringing hope. We're going to have a benefit show here. And it's going to be real good. There's going to be youth from all over the city that join us here for that benefit show. And they're going to be donating uh, cans of food to Seeds of Hope. And also towards anti-traffic, anti-human trafficking efforts. It's amazing. Artists putting their hands to work. Artists getting their hands dirty. 
So what we see here is that obedience is more valuable to God than our skill or talent. And what this means is that God equips the called. He doesn't simply call the equipped. God equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. Let's break that down. That could be offensive. What this means is that we don't have to church it up before we come to God. Um, I don't know what a perfume maker did in those days. I don't, maybe, I don't know if it was like an Estee Lauder, like mall perfume retail person, or if they like were a mixologist or something, but I'm pretty sure that that didn't include carpentry skills on their resume. Can we all agree upon that? That a perfume maker or a goldsmith had no business rebuilding the city wall of Jerusalem. Absolutely no business building the wall of Jerusalem. That's good news for folks who don't feel equipped to carry on the work of God in our city. Isn't that refreshing for us to know? That God um, equips the called and not necessarily calls the equipped. It would have been like if Samuel chose one of David's big brothers to be king of Israel. But Samuel, acting as God's voice to that family, did not choose the bigger, handsomer big brother, did he? And he said, is this all of your sons that you have? And David's dad says, let me think about it. <laughs> First, let me think about Oh, yeah, I mean... For the most part, this is it. I mean, there's, that, there's another one. He's barely a son. I mean, he's out in the sheep pen. <laughs> Not very kingly. He's out in the sheep pen. And Samuel says, bring him up. So they bring him up. And there's David. David's called. He's not really equipped. In the world's eyes. He's out taking care of sheep, cleaning up sheep poo. He's not real fit to be a king over the whole land. But God equips the called. God will give you all the resource that you need. He's calling you into this thing. He's calling you into this. And our, our job is to simply say yes. See, the perfume maker had no idea what it meant to build a wall. But the perfume maker knew how to say yes. And who, who didn't know how to say yes were the nobles of Tekoa. We read in verse 5 that they wouldn't serve. They wouldn't, the nobles of the men of Tekoa would not serve. The language here in Hebrew means that the nobles of Tekoa, now it's, before we get to the language, what it's, what it's not saying is that all people in this time who had money or influence would not work. We see people of influence and people of means putting their hands to the work. It was the specific context. These guys, the, the nobles of the men of Tekoa, so just these guys. And what the Hebrew language here is, is that these nobles felt like the work was beneath them. The work was beneath them. 
They were too good to put their hands to, to the work. Or maybe they had people to do that. We've got people for that. We're not going to do it. We don't have to, so we won't. How? Let me read you this story. During um, World War II, England needed to increase its production of coal. So Churchill called together some labor leaders to enlist their support. And at the end of his presentation, he asked them to picture in their minds a parade at the end of the war. And it's going to be held in Piccadilly Circus after all is said and done and there's peace. And first, he said, in this parade would come the sailors who had kept the vital sea lanes open. And then would come the soldiers who had come home from Dunkirk and then gone on to defeat Rommel in Africa. Then would come the pilots who had driven the Luftwaffe from the sky. And last of all, he said, last of all, would come a long line of sweat-stained, soot-streaked men in miners' caps. Someone would cry from the crowd, and where were you during the critical days of our struggle? And from 10,000 throats would come the answer, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. Not all the jobs in a church are prominent and glamorous, but it's often the people with their faces to the coal who help the church accomplish, accomplish its mission. No, no job should be beneath you or I for the mission of Jesus. Because no job was beneath Jesus himself. This week in small group, we talked about this passage, and we were reminded of when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Let's read it together. In John 13, we read this. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you, should also, you, should, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set 
you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Picks up the towel. This is dirty work. The disciples would have never in a million years expected Jesus to do this. This was a servant's job. This was a dirty job. In fact, Luca and Winnie's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, calls this the story of the stinky feet. This is dirty business. And this is the job of a servant. And so when Jesus stoops down and he picks up the towel and wraps it around his waist, what he's saying is to the disciples is that what you think about leadership, how the world sees leadership, is not at all how I see leadership. In fact, it's exactly the opposite of how the world views leadership. And that's exactly why they nailed him on the tree. Because Jesus... St- stooped down, and he picked up the towel. Picking up the towel is a very offensive thing in our society. How many, t- how many times do we avoid picking up the towel because we know what it'll cost? Listen, if Jesus never stooped down to pick up the, pick up the towel, Pilate would have said, let him go free. But because Jesus said, your power structure is debunked and all you do is try to lord it over people and make them, and make them serve you, I'm going to pick up the towel. And that's why they put him on the cross. Picking up the towel is offensive. Picking up the towel is going to be inconvenient for you. That's why you're picking up the towel. It's going to be inconvenient for you. It's going to be inconvenient to your finances. It's going to place an inconvenience on your time. It's going to place you in inconvenient places. It's going to place you with inconvenient people. I'm preaching to myself, too. How many times do we avoid picking up the towel? Oh, we're so subtle. We're so clever creatures, aren't we? Someone asks me to do something, and... Magically, I have an appointment appear on my books that I have to go to. Oh, you know what I'm talking about. Is it just me? You know. Oh, you show up. You show up every time to pick up the towel. Oh, good Christians, are we? Okay. Then you, Cleveland, it's time to pick up the towel. It's time to pick up the towel. Even when no one sees, even when it hurts, even when we don't feel like it, our yes matters. Obedience matters. Our yes matters. Saying yes to Jesus, what does that look like? It looks like picking up a towel and serving others. And that's how we bring life to the city, through compassion not through domination, not through power plays. We bring life to the city by picking up a towel and serving someone other than ourselves. It's time to get our eyes off of ourselves. Vineyard Cleveland, it's time to put our hands to rebuilding the ruins. No earning in grace, but grace is not opposed to effort. You're going to need to get your hands dirty. You're going to need to serve someone other than yourself. And sometimes... And there are some here this morning whose eyes are firmly fixed upon their navels. 
And we need to get our eyes off of our navels and out to the city because do you know that the remnant in Jerusalem, the people who are saying next to them and next to them and next to them, were in that city for 40 years. They looked around the city for 40 years at the, at the walls that were burned down to the ground. And how often did they pass by and said, oh, somebody's going to fix that once, you know, some, sometime. Why now? Why now? It's time to get our eyes off of our navels and onto the, onto the Lord Jesus and serving his purposes in the city of greater Cleveland. It's time. It's time to pick up the towel. It's time to stop asking the Lord, what's wrong with me inside? What's wrong with my soul? What's wrong in there? What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? When the city around you is dying. For an answer, you don't get healed by staring at your navel. You get healed when you go. You get healed as you go. That's where you find life and giving it away. Not at staring at your navel. How can I be, how can I be more, how can I, how can I love Jesus more? Jesus is saying you can love me more by going out there. That's how you can love me. That's how you can experience my love. Now, I'm not diminishing the value of, like, formational prayer. And, and, it's, and some of that is good for, for our self-awareness as people. It's healthy. I'm just saying that too much introspection contributes to the decay of the society out there. They're, they're waiting You claim to have Jesus living inside your heart. You and I claim to have living presence living inside of our heart while people are living in decay in a culture of death and waiting for you to bring life to them. I was just told a story. A a man's knee was healed this morning in first service. It was amazing. Jesus was like all over him. But this came, but that's nothing compared to what the woman who prayed for him experienced the week before. You see, she drives bus. And it was a funny thing, you know, when she drives bus, who's driving the bus? It's not her, it's Jesus. Jesus is driving that bus. And isn't it a funny thing that two of the women of the hundreds of people who got on her bus that week, their, knee, their knees got healed while they were sitting on the bus. That's amazing. So it's great that dude gets healed here on a Sunday morning and he doesn't have to have knee surgery. Praise the Lord for that. But how amazing it is that two women who had no idea that Jesus was their bus driver got their knees healed this past week. Jesus is driving the bus. Jesus is is writing through your hands as you fill out reports. Jesus is, is typing through your fingers as you type out reports. Jesus is changing the oil of that person's car as you work at your mechanic shop. Jesus is working through you as you install new faucets. Jesus is, is working through you and through I to bring life to the city. Instead of staring at our navels, it's time to put our hands to work and turn our hearts to God. It's time to pick up the towel. And lastly, vision and leadership can only go as far as the obedience of God's people. Your yes to God matters. Vision and leadership can only go as far as the obedience of God's people. Look, 
You could, you could have the best vision, the most amazing leader before you, and I've got news for you, you don't. I'm a pretty boring guy. I like to fish. I mean, I'm <laughs> pretty simple. You could have the most amazing vision laid out before you. You could have the most amazing, you know, charismatic leader before you who's like, you know, saying all sorts of God nuggets or whatever. I don't know, but... Um, but it means nothing without the yes of the people. Am I right? Vision and leadership will only go as far as we are willing to say yes to Jesus. Jesus said yes to the Father when it was inconvenient for him. He was asked to die a criminal's death, though he had done nothing to deserve it. Yet, he said yes. He said yes. Jesus said yes. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. If we want to see the impossible things take shape, if we want to see the, the ruins being rebuilt in places like Brook Park or Parma Heights or Lakewood, or East Cleveland, or Cleveland Heights, or University Circle, or Willoughby, or wherever it may be. Vision and leadership can only go as far as we're willing to say yes. And as we say yes, I promise you the impossible things will take shape. I promise you. You'll, what you'll begin to see is you'll begin to see little pockets of life sprout up. You'll begin to see it like we're seeing at Market Square Park. You'll, be, you'll see little, little shoots of life pop up. It won't be noticeable. It won't be noticeable, but at least we're putting our hand to something. I want to I check out of this world knowing that my life counted that I put my hand to something, that I did something to see the kingdom of Jesus ushered in in the here, in the now. Sarah and I met with Rich Nathan yesterday in Columbus, and he was chatting with us about his early days at Vineyard Columbus. And this is a, this is a side point to say we want this church to grow. I want, I want to see all of these seats filled on Sunday morning. We want it to grow because we feel like they're getting good stuff, people are getting good stuff here. We feel like we've got the, we feel like we're kind of like um, indie church right now. We're not cool at all. Listen, guys, we're not trendy at all. We're not cool. Sarah and I are not cool people. We don't have like the cool haircuts. I'm bald. <laughs> Listen, so we don't have that going for us. We're not like trendy. But what we do have going for us is the Holy Spirit. And um, so we feel like right now, I don't know. I mean, other churches are doing great stuff, you know. I feel like we're indie church right now. We're sort of like, no one knows about us, and it's really good that way. It's really, this is really good. Family is really good, and we'll continue to be a family even as we grow, because there will come a day in the near future where some, something's going to break uh, soon, and we won't be able to sort of contain this, this anymore. It's going to be a sad day, but it'll be a really happy day because people, people, the more people will get to experience it. 
and that's and that's good. Okay. So as we were, that was just a family kind of moment there. Um, as we were meeting with Rich in Columbus, and he, it was just amazing on a personal note. Like he prayed, he prayed over Sarah and I, and um, gosh, he put, he put his hand on my forehead, and he prayed. He was just like, Lord, just any authority that you've given me in preaching, I just pray that you'd give to Evan now and it's really good. But anyway, he told us this story of um, David Parker. David Parker planted the, the desert vineyard in Lancaster, California. And um, I know we're running a touch late. I'm sorry. If you've got to go, you've got to go. Um, he, he planted the desert vineyard in Lancaster, California. And his church isn't growing, and he's frustrated, and he's really um, upset about it. And he's praying, and he's like, Lord, what is the key here? He was asking for the keys to the city. What, I'm, like, what is going on? He's frustrated. Why won't this church grow? And, and he's asking the Lord, and he's like weeping over it. And do you know, do you know what God said to David Parker? Here was, here, here was what the Lord said to David Parker as he was praying. Do something. It's super prophetic, I know. It's really deep spiritually. He said, do something. Anything. Do anything. You know, because you trust the culture that, you're, that lives inside of you. And a glass can only spill what it contains. And so when you walk into a room, you spill the presence of Jesus. Just do something. Anything. Do something. Let's do something. I want to do something. I want to do something. I want to I see homeless people fed. Go do it. Do something. Because we will grow. This church will grow. Sarah and I were very clear about that when we came in here. This church will grow. If you don't want the church to grow, you should leave. You should leave this church today. If you don't want to do messy church, you should leave too. This church is going to grow. We're going to grow, and we're going to grow big. We feel like the, the larger we grow, the more resources we have to bring more life to the city. Why? To feed my crazy ego? No. So that Jesus is lifted up. And so that every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess in the, greater city, in, the, in the city of greater Cleveland that Jesus is Lord. And that Jesus reigns. And that the kingdom of heaven is upon us. And we can't help that it's rushing in on us. It's breaking upon us if we would only listen and say yes when it's inconvenient to us. Why don't you join me in standing?